Amen. Check it out. One day this police officer, so I'm told, pulls over the speeding car. And the officer says, hey, I clocked you at 80 miles per hour, sir. And the driver, Ken Nyland. What? That's right, Ken Nyland. That's right. He says, well, gee, officer, I had it on cruise control uh, at 60. Uh, perhaps your radar needs uh, recalibrating. Well, not looking up from her knitting, Jess, Ken's wife, obviously, sitting next to him in the passenger seat, she says sweetly, oh, no, don't be silly, Ken. You know that the, you, this car doesn't have cruise control. So the officer, he writes out the ticket to Ken, right? And he looks over at Jess and he growls and he simply says, can't you keep your mouth shut for once? But Jess, she just smiles and says, and you should be thankful that your radar detector went off when it did, Ken. So now the officer's writing out the second ticket for the illegal radar detector, right? And, and Ken again, he glares at Jess and through clenched teeth, he says, come on, woman, can't you just keep your mouth shut? And so the, the officer frowns, he says, and I notice that you're not wearing your seatbelt, sir. That's an automatic $175 fine. But Ken says, but, uh, 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 yeah, yeah, well, you see, officer, I, I had it on, but I took it off when you pulled me over so I can get the light, my license out of my back pocket. And Jess says, now, Ken, <laughs> you know very well you didn't have your seatbelt on. You never wear your seatbelt when you're driving. So the police officer, sir, he's writing off the third ticket. And Ken turns to Jess, and he just loses. He says, why don't you just be quiet? And the officer, he looks at Jess and says, ma'am, does your husband always talk to you this way? And Jess ever so sweetly says, oh, heaven's no officer, only when he's been drinking. <laughs> Whoa. Now, you guys are sharp today. You don't have jet lag like myself, but uh, how many guys would say Ken's in trouble there? You know what I'm saying? All the way around with, with Jess, with the police, the whole nine He's in big trouble, okay, with his lying, okay? Jess made sure of that. But believe it or not, folks, lying is apparently not the only behavior that's causing a lot of serious grief for Christians out there. Here's another behavior, unfortunately. It's called a lack of Bible study. A lack of Bible study. And it's gone on so long, folks, it's now produced a whole generation of churches full of Christians who are acting like practical atheists. We say we believe in God. Of course, hey, that's the right answer on the test. Hello, at least get that one right, right? Okay, but half the times, folks, with our lips and our lives, we're giving a different impression as Christians. We're acting like God's not even there. Therefore, to avoid this irony of you and I as Christians living like these practical atheists by not knowing who God is, we're going to continue in our study on the character of God. Okay, and we've already seen the first thing we need to know about God. Hello, he is what? He's real. There's a real reason why we're here. He's real, okay? The second thing is he's personal. He died, Jesus died on the cross to give us what? Another religion on the planet. Absolutely not. He died for an intimate, loving, beautiful, bride-like relationship for each one of us. The third thing we saw is God is wise. If you need answers in life, who do you go to? God. Why? Because he not only knows all things, he never makes a mistake. Hello, he's God. Why would you go anywhere else? He is wise. And then the last eight times, who's counting? I am. The last eight times, the fourth thing we saw is, hello, God is sovereign. Once again, let me read to you that definition. God's sovereignty means this. All things, how many things? All things are under God's rule and control, and that nothing, nothing happens without his direct direction or permission. Okay? As we've been seeing, this is not only a great comfort in our walk with God, it begins to answer some of those skeptical questions that we keep getting asked about God, especially when it comes to evil and suffering. If God's real, if he's so loving, why is there evil and suffering? What's he doing? In fact, look at you, Christian. You're going through hard times. But what we've been seeing is there is good that can come from suffering. God is sovereign, okay? And he takes care of us, his children. For those who love him, he's going to work all things together for good. Last time we saw three more of those wise reasons. Reasons, and that was to get us steered into a new direction, to get us to appreciate fellowship, and to get us to build our faith. Okay, but Bobby, I'm still preaching on this, so guess what? There's got to be more. 
There's got to be more, and there's right. I didn't have to pay you for that. Man, praise God. You must be an intern. Okay? Uh, the 15th wise reason. Why in the world? What is God up to? What's he trying to do? What good thing is happening? Why am I going through this? You know what? It might be he's trying to get you to return to him. And last time I checked, that's not a bad thing. That's the best thing. Okay? But sometimes we don't respond. What's the, what's the scripture say elsewhere? God's kindness leads us to repentance, but we don't always respond to his kindness, do we? So you know what he does? He'll use some challenges to get your attention. But hey, don't be surprised. He does it all through the scripture for his kids, including Israel. Okay? Open your Bibles to Amos chapter 4. This is awesome. Now, most likely, uh, this is that part of the Bible that's got those white, crisp, clean pages, almost as if you've never been there before. <laughs> Hopefully you have. Amos chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11, okay? And uh, Israel also compared to, uh, in the New Testament, we the church, the bride of Christ. And uh, Israel, of course, uh, being compared as uh, God's wife. And, uh, but Amos chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we're going to see Israel once again uh, turning away from God, okay, getting worldly, okay, and God is going to do some things to get them back to him, or at least uh, attempt that. Okay, let's take a look at what he does. But first, we're going to start off with the problem. Why did God have to do that in the first place? What was their spiritual status? And that's what we see here in the prophet Amos. Amos chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. When you get there, say moo. Moo. Okay, you guys found it quicker than I thought. All right, Amos chapter 4. Let's take a look here. Hear this word, you... What? You cows? What? Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount... Was he talking to animals? No. What's the context? This is serious stuff. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. You what? You women. Uh Uh-oh. Who who oppress the poor and crush the needy and, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord is sworn by his holiness. The time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks. The last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaks in the wall. And you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices. Oh, you can hear the sarcasm. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn that leavened bread and that thank offering and brag about your free real offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. Bunch of superficial religion stuff. We never do that, do we? So here's what God did for his wife, Israel. So here's what I did. I gave you empty stomachs. In every city, and lack of bread in every town. And yet, what? You have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still uh, three months away. I, I sent rain on one town, and a, but I withheld it from another. And one field had rain, another had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. And yet, you have what? You have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, and I, I struck them with blight and mildew and locusts devoured your fig and olive trees and and yet you you what yet you have not returned to me declares the lord i I sent plagues among you as i did in egypt i I killed your young men with the sword and along with your captured horses i filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps and yet you've what you have not returned to me declares the lord in fact i overthrew some of you as i uh, overthrew sodom and gomorrah and, and you were like burning sticks snatched from the fire yet you have not returned to me declares the lord wow how many guys have said it's a pretty intensive passage there? Okay, that is intense, okay? It's pretty harsh, okay? And that's precisely why uh, God uses some pretty harsh language to get their attention, okay? There was some harsh behavior going on, okay? But God loves his people, so he does what it takes to bring them back uh, to him. Now, the first thing, if you notice, though, that God used to get their attention was he called these ladies what? Cows. 
Man, that's serious stuff. In fact, only God could get away with this. Okay, because I'm the youngest of four. I got two older sisters, right? And there were three things, pay attention, that I learned from my older sisters when I grew up. Number one, don't you ever touch their purse. Don't you ever, ever touch their purse. Okay, number two, don't you ever embarrass them when their boyfriends come over. I took a lot of beatings for that one (laughs) as the youngest little brother, right? And number three, don't you ever, don't you ever, ever, ever call a cow. If you're going to ever compare a woman to any kind of an animal, it better be something graceful and slender like a deer or a doe or a gazelle or something. I, I'm just Don't even do it in the first place. But Whoa! You cows of Bashan. That's serious stuff. All right? But seriously, what do we see? God did call these women a bunch of cows. It's right in the Bible. I'm not making this up. He called these women a bunch of cows, bang, right off the bat to get their attention. Do you think it caught their attention? Listen to this. What were these women doing? He tells us what, why he had to use such harsh language to get their attention. They were being greedy. They were caring only for themselves. They were actually abusing the poor. And then to make matters worse, even when they, quote, did spend time with God, uh, their heart wasn't even in it. They were just going through the motions. It was just some dry, stale, man-made, boring religion. And again, it's a good thing we don't do that today. Wow. Now, here's the point. As you can see in the context, why did God? Because it breaks the heart of God. It breaks his heart. We've seen many times before, God wants a loving, beautiful, intimate relationship with you and I, his people, not some dry, stale, man-made religion. He sees the whole thing all the time. And according to our text here, the reason why these women got into this condition, listen, was because they sold themselves out to the wicked world system. All right? The, the, the King James Version, some of the other versions, they'll use the word harlot. Okay? What basically is going on here is they committed what's called spiritual adultery. Whoa. Spiritual adultery. And this is what broke God's heart. Okay? It broke his heart. Okay? They should love him most of all after all he's done. And what you you give your heart to this wicked world system. It's not just the world, it's a wicked world system. You chose the wicked world system over me. Spiritual adultery. Serious stuff with God, okay? And it broke God's heart. And so out of love, what did God do? He sent hardships over and over and over and over again. Why? To get them to return back to him. Why? Because he wants that loving, intimate relationship back. Again, here's the kicker. Did you guys realize that God allows hardships to come our way today, just like the Israelites, so our hearts can be rescued from loving this wicked world system more than him? Spiritual adultery. He does. But herein lies our problem. We, we all say that God's top priority on our list, right? You guys are nervous as all get out this morning. <laughs> yeah, we all say, yeah, he's top priority on our list, of course. I mean, it's only natural. He, he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. He, he, he saved us from eternal damnation from hell. It's a gift from him. Woo! I'll do anything he says. But here's the problem. Once we're choose, listen, and asked to choose between spending time with God and or doing something for God, i.e. serving him after all he's done, what do we do? Let's be honest, nine times out of ten, just like Israel, we choose this wicked world system. We'd rather watch that ball game. We'd rather watch that sitcom. We'd rather watch the movie. We'd rather go shopping anything but spending time with God, that boring stuff. Haven't you heard you become a Christian? I don't want to become a Christian. I'll wait till I'm a good 99 years old and 14 seconds from death. Because haven't you heard you miss out on so much fun? Christ's love compels us, Paul says. 
when we realize all that he's done for us. Nobody has to twist your arm. Nobody's got to pull your teeth or guilt you with the sermon. Or it's a natural response. Thank you, God. What do you want me to do? I want to get to know you more before I even get to heaven. And I can. That's amazing. What? And you could still use me to do something, anything, in spite of me? Whoa, this keeps getting better. That's the normal response. But we get seduced by this wicked world system that says, no, 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 no. Come to the world. The world's where you're going to find satisfaction. The world's where you're going to help relieve that stress. The world, the world. And you could hear the same line from Israel. The fat cows of Bashan. Give us more, give us more, give us more, give us more. Okay? And this breaks God's heart. Okay? And, and so just like Israel, we too today break God's heart. And listen, it's slowly. We, we, you can't, anybody glad you can't lose your salvation? Yes. Anybody glad that it's complete in the cross of Jesus Christ? Praise God. But you know what? It will destroy that intimacy with God. That's the danger. I remember when I shared this before. When I first got saved, a couple of weeks later, all of a sudden, you know, getting into the Bible, I figure that's what you're supposed to do as a Christian, right? And all of a sudden, it starts to dawn on me, wait a second, you mean to tell me I can get closer to Jesus in a relationship with him before I get to heaven? Whoa! It was awesome. But what happens, that's when the battle comes. Satan, plan A, was to keep you from coming to Christ so you can go to hell with him, okay, in the lake of fire. Plan B is he doesn't leave you alone. Plan B is to do anything and everything but get you to have that intimate walk with Jesus. Why? Because that's when you grow up. That's when you become mature. That's when you become a threat to the enemy. He can't have that. That's when you experience all the blessings of a tight walk with Jesus. You become a profound witness for him. So like a Pied Piper, he's always out there. No, 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 over here, over here, over here. Anything that gets you from having that intimacy with God. And so God sees this and he loves us. So here's what he does. Out of mercy, out of wisdom, out of incredible good sovereignty. You know what he does? He allows difficulties again and again and again, just like Israel. And guess what? Just like Israel, we can learn real fast. We can either keep on committing spiritual adultery and experience nothing but pain. How many times do we have to eat dirt? There's another prophet. He said, what's the passage? He says, you have forsaken me, the living water, and you have chosen broken cisterns. It's like trying to find satisfaction sucking up sand. It ain't working, Bobby. I wonder why. How about something with water? And that's what he's saying. So we keep committing and you experience nothing. Are you tired of that? Or listen, here's what, here's what God's trying to give us. Or... You can simply return to God and enjoy wonderful things like this. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. This is what you get. Woo! Love. Anybody want more love? Joy. Yeah. Unspeakable. Peace. Patience. Kindness. And total abundance. I can't believe God's trying to give that to me, man. I'm having a hard enough time with life. And he's trying to give me all this stuff too. That's what we act like. It's like it's trying to give us some sour medicine. Are you kidding me? This is it. This is the source. This is the living water. This is where it all comes from. All those things we say we want. And that the world lies and says, no, no, you'll get love here. You'll get peace here. You'll get joy here. No, you won't. How many times do we get burned? And God, he'll use these things to get us back to him. He doesn't want us to act like a bunch of cows who are only concerned, listen, about a big fancy house, a giant wardrobe, tons of jewelry, 80 pairs of shoes, a big fancy truck, hot rod car, nothing but sports. He wants an intimate relationship with us and bless us with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. And not just for us. 
but the people who are lost around us can see that and go, hey, can I have that too? And we have the privilege to say, yeah, you get it from Jesus. Free, okay? So I wanted to break this down because you know, we think Israel, oh, hey, have you noticed that sometimes we do that as Christians? We read the Old Testament like we're supposed to, but we kind of distance ourselves like, oh, those Israelites. <laughs> Not like us today, us sophisticated Christians. Oh. Excuse me? So, so I, I, I took the same text, and I hope you don't mind, and kind of modernized it, okay? Let's reread it for Christianity today, okay? Let's take a look at Amos, okay? And let's just get back to the part where he's doing what he had to do to get them to return to him. But today's vernacular, Amos chapter 4, verse 6 through 11, I gave you an empty cupboard and a lack of food in every church, yet you have not returned to me declares the Lord. I also withheld jobs from you when, when, when the mortgage payment was still due. I, I allowed one person to keep their job, but, but withheld it from another. And, and one family allowed to keep their job, and a, another allowed them to go bankrupt. Uh, people lined up for government assistance, but it was never enough, yet you have not returned to me, declares. You can almost see what's happening to our country, can't you? Right? It keeps getting worse. Many times I struck your checkbooks and your bank accounts and I struck them with blight and mildew and locusts devoured your economy and yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. And some of you became ill and some of you even died, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. If you think God allowing difficulties to come our way is too harsh, Christian, you need to think about the alternative. What if God... He's sovereign, folks. But what if God did not control the evil that comes our way? Have you ever thought about that? Okay. Johnny Erickson Tata, once again, she says this. She says, do we find repulsive a God who gives the nod to our tragedies? She says, think about the alternative. Imagine a God who didn't deliberately permit the smallest details of your particular sorrows. What if your trials were not screened by any divine plan? What if God insisted on a hands-off policy towards the tragedies that were swimming your way? Okay, Think of what this would mean. First, the world would be worse, much worse, absolutely intolerable for everyone every second. Try to conceive of a Lucifer unrestrained. Left to his own, the devil would make jobs of us all. The Third Reich would have lasted forever. Your head would be mounted on Satan's wall above his fireplace. Human sacrifice would entertain basketball crowds at halftime, and child molesting techniques would be taught at community colleges. She says the only reason why things aren't worse is because God curbs evil. Satan had asked to sift you like wheat. Jesus told Peter, and we could be certain the old snake didn't check in with God out of politeness. He had to get permission, which means even Satan operates under God's constraints. Amen? And she says, evil can only raise its head where God deliberately backs away, but listen, always for reasons that are specific, wise, and good, but often hidden during this present life. Listen, if God didn't control evil, the result will be evil uncontrolled. God permits what he hates to achieve what he loves. And what he loves, what he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for, is a loving, beautiful, intimate, bride-like relationship with his children. And so if he has to allow, he's not the author of evil. Of course not. That would be blasphemy. But if he has to allow a few difficulties to protect you and I from spiritual adultery that is destroying our intimate walk with him, hey, praise God, bring him on. Amen? And then replace it with more love, 
more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more gentleness. Hey, isn't that what we pray for? And it's all because God allowed a hardship for a good, sovereign reason. The 16th reason is to get us to witness for him. Turn to somebody and say, don't be a Jonah. Okay? And I think that's what's going on, unfortunately, today. We got modern-day Jonas again. We all, you know, look at that. Account. Oh, poor that guy. Man, he ran from God. We would never. Yeah, we're stepping on toes today. Okay? But let's take a look at that passage there. Kind of get a synopsis. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 through 4, 11 through 12, and 15 and 17. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against him, because its wickedness has come up before me, God says. But what Jonah do? Absolutely, God, I'm going to round up as many people as I can. We're going to make a journey out of this. We're going on and sharing the gospel to every... Yeah, whatever. Wrong translation. He ran. He ran from the command of God. Yes, these people are wicked. Oh, have, have, has anybody ever forgot where you got saved from? Right? Hey, if that's God, tell him I love him. Okay. But has anybody ever forgot where you came from? Folks, God wants everybody to be saved. We know they're not, but he wants. God is not willing that any should perish, but he wants everybody, including the Ninevites. But he ran from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish, and he went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Well, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, and so they asked Jonah, says, hey, man, what, what should we do uh, to you to make the sea calm down for us? And here's what he said, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So they took Jonah, they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, how many guys say again, you're sharp, much sharper than me, uh, than that jet lag issue going on. Uh, but uh, uh, how many guys would say that um, getting mm, thrown over in a storm on a boat and getting sucked up by a fish is kind of a hard day? That's a rough one, right? Get a whale of circumstances, okay? Now, I got I to take a little detour here because as soon as you start talking about Jonah and the whale, what's the skeptic do? Oh, yeah, all right. Who could ever do this? It's not scientifically possible. Excuse me. <clears throat> 1927 Princeton Review. Listen to this. Uh, they have recorded, and this is just one instance. This recorded, okay, of just one instance of where this actually happened post-Jonah. Okay, this is completely possible today. Quote, a member of the crew, 1927, of the crew of a whaling ship in the vicinity of the Falkland Islands was swallowed by a large sperm whale, which had been harpooned and his boat had been upset by the lash of its tail. The whale was killed later and dissected. And on the third day, the missing sailor was found inside the stomach of the animal, doubled up and unconscious. A bath of seawater soon revived him, listen, but the skin of his face, neck, and hands, exposed as it had been to the action of the gastric juices in the stomach, okay, was bleached to a deadly whiteness and never regained its natural appearance. Otherwise, his health was not affected by the terrible ordeal. Actual account in history, okay? As if we need that proof, just trust God, he never lies. Okay, but for the skeptic out there. Now, what's really interesting is I continue on the little detour here uh, with Jonah and the whale. Why, of all things, did he cause him to get sucked up by uh, a whale, a fish? Well, if you know anything about the Syrians, they worshipped a god called Dagon, or Dagon, however you want to pronounce it. Dagon was the fish god. 
He was half male, half fish, believe it or not. And he had a wife, apparently, uh, named Nanshi, okay, but they worshiped the fish god, okay? So you put all this in the context, Jonah, God even used Jonah's disobedience to get the wicked Ninevites' attention, to prepare their hearts to get right with God. It's absolutely amazing. Listen to this, okay? The transportation God provided for Jonah was a great fish. This would have been full of meaning for the Ninevites. When Jonah arrived in their city, he made quite a splash, so to speak, he was a man who had been listened inside of a fish for three days and directly deposited by a fish on the shores of Assyria. And since the Ninevites worshipped the fish god, they were not just impressed, they gave Jonah their due attention. And they responded. Isn't that wild? Learn something new every day. Okay? But my point in this passage here is, okay, the obvious question is, why in the world would God do this? I think we got a little bit more of the reason why they're okay, but why would he allow his child, the prophet Jonah, to get be sucked up by a giant fish? Okay, well, what did the text say? He refused to do what God called him to do, i.e. was what? To witness. To witness, to preach, specifically to some wicked people. And the, granted, the, the Ninevites were seriously wicked, right? People would literally surrender just hearing that they were coming because they would skin people alive. Uh, they had also done before the Romans uh, perfected it into crucifixion. They would do the impaling. Uh, they literally, as mentioned in the other text, they would uh, take people captive by the fish hook and drag them along okay, into captivity. It was just, so when the Ninevites were coming, you just, okay, we surrender. So I, I get that, but he still didn't do what God called him to do. He didn't witness to the Ninevites, and so God had to what? God had to get his attention. Okay, God judged or God got uh, Jonah into a position to get the job done anyway. You know why? Because God cares for the lost. Did you know that? Have we forgotten that? Remember what it was like being lost? Remember how horrible it was? Remember how dark, depressing, lonely? Empty, vanity of vanities. Remember how rotten and empty life was? God cares for the lost. He doesn't want them to go to hell. So he sent Jonah, his child, to tell these people the good news that they don't have to go there. They can become God's child too. But when Jonah refused, God sent a hardship his way to motivate him to get him to do it anyway. Now, once again, here's the kicker. Did you know that only happens with Jonah? Yeah, no, it happens to us today. But see, see, we don't acknowledge that, do we? It must have been the devil. It must have been those people. You know, it might be the hand of God. Did you know that? That sent that whale of circumstance your way, Christian. Okay? But here, here, here lies the problem. We all say we want to be a faithful witness for Jesus, right? Yahoo! I want to get, I want to get out there. I want, I want to tell everybody can about Jesus. I want to be a faithful witness for him. I'm not like Jonah. No way. But listen, what seems to be the very last thing on our priority list? I mean, spending time with God, we already saw that. Serving him, yeah, that unfortunately is pretty low. That's too bad. That's sad. But man, you want to talk to what's tucked underneath that, underneath the rock, under the dust on the rock? It seems to be witnessing. It seems to be witnessing. It's crazy. It's the very, very last thing, it seems. To be a witness for Jesus, telling other people like him. And so what are we doing today? We too, just like Jonah, we're doing the same thing. We're running the other way. And so God sees this, so what's he do? Out of love, out of mercy, out of incredible sovereign goodness, he will allow a hardship to come our way, not just for us, but for the sake of the lost. And we can either keep on trying to run from God and not do what he's called us to do, i.e. witness and experience nothing but pain, or get busy witnessing, do what he says to do, and realize, you know what? 
it wasn't that big of a pain after all. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege, folks, but the most fantastic thing to me, there's something supernatural, something fantastic, this, the crazy, wonderful privilege is to be there and to God use you. It's not you, it's his spirit, but for God to use you to lead a soul to Christ. That's awesome. It's not a pain, okay? All witnessing is, is a giant rescue operation. Did you know that? That's all it is. L let me give you an analogy, okay? It's a natural loving response towards somebody you see who is in danger. For instance, let's say a boat's going down, right? And uh, use the old analogy of the Titanic, right? You, you made it into the lifeboat, okay? You're the only one there. But what do you do? There's peoples all glub-glubbing all around you, and what do you do? <laughs> I made it. Man, too bad you guys can't swim like me. Woo! Yeah, I'm safe. Too bad for you. Right? Now, if you saw somebody doing that and you were in a lifeboat near to that boat, what would you do? You pick up the oar and lay hands on them. No. So, <laughs> that would be horrible. How could you, what? They're, they're, how could you, what kind of an attitude is that? You got tons of rockets. See if you're all going to tip. You're the only one there. How in the world could you have. No, what do you do? What's the, nobody gives, has to give you a sermon. You say, I, I'm frozen with inactivity. I have no clue what to do. I see people drowning all around me. I'm in a boat. Everybody knows what to do. It's natural. You, hey, over here, hey, right? You might get wet. You might almost tip the boat over. But hey, you got to do what you got to do. It's a normal, natural response. It's a giant rescue operation. In fact, the non-loving response would be like this guy. Watch this. This is like, you got to be kidding me, okay? Let's take a look. An experienced firefighter was recently charged with grave neglect of duty. Prosecutors maintained that he had abandoned his responsibility when he failed to release rescue equipment. This resulted in the needless and tragic deaths of a family of five. Eyewitnesses were sickened when they discovered that the reason the firefighter remained locked in the emergency vehicle was simply because he was testing a new high-tech CD player, which he maintained he had bought as a gift for the fire chief. The fire chief immediately distanced himself from the defendant, and he dishonorably discharged him from the department. In a prepared statement, the chief said, quote, there are no words to describe such a betrayal of those he was sworn to protect. The lead prosecuting attorney argued that for more than three minutes after arriving on the scene, the firefighter wore earphones and listened to a CD while a family of five was screaming to be rescued from the sixth floor of a burning building. Horrified onlookers related that as flames licked her clothing, a mother cried out in terror and fell to her death while still clutching an infant in her arms. Other witnesses said that the father was clutching two terrified children as he was engulfed by the massive flames. This terrifying drama took place in full view of the firefighter as he remained seated in the vehicle listening to the CD. The defense pleaded no contest but added that the defendant went to great personal sacrifice to purchase the expensive gift for the chief and hoped that the judge would take that into consideration as he passed sentence. What do you think is a fitting punishment for this serious crime? Two years in prison? 20 years? A life sentence? Capital punishment? You be the judge. Yeah. You be the judge. What would be a fitting punishment for that guy 
who sat there and did nothing while people burned up in flames. You know where I'm going? Mm -hmm. We do the same thing when we refuse to witness. We too, folks, are like firefighters. The fire we're up against is the fire of hell. Praise God, we're not going there. We got our life suit on, amen? But the people around us don't. And they're in the midst of the flames. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, our friends, they're in danger of going that fire. And what are we doing? Are we sitting in our house? Listening to our music? Watching the news? Back to that sitcom thing? While people are flirting with the flames. One guy said this, he says, we love as Christians to talk about evangelism and reaching out to the lost, but we must do much more than just talk about it. The current statistics worldwide in the body of Christ is, listen, 95% of people who call themselves Christians never, ever, ever once lead one person to Christ in their entire life. Their entire life. And so you flip it around, that means only 5% of Christians are leading souls to Christ. Only 5%. And then you flip it around. Talk about the investment. God gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, that is, teachers, right? We're familiar with that passage in Ephesians. I would hope so, right? So why am I here? Somebody's going to tell a corny joke. No, it's just beyond the corny joke, please. Hopefully you got past that. Okay, no, it's to equip what? Keep reading. To equip the saints. You and I, who's a saint? Every Christian. It's not just that the pastor evangelizes. It's I'm up here as one of my privileged duties as a shepherd, and that is to invest the word of God into the saints, all of us, so that not just one person, but all of us as Christians get out there and do the work of the ministry. God doesn't need five million people to win Vegas to Christ. He just needs a handful. But could we get it beyond the 5%? Listen to what he says. He says, that means, listen to this, listen to the statistics. That means 95% of believers who go to church services regularly, they get the word of God, they get ministered for and upon, they get prayed for, they get inner healing, they get outer healing, they get counseled, they get loved, they get shepherded, they get encouraged, and yet all of this is consumed on themselves. Jonah. And never once translates into not even one soul. Being saved. Wow. I think we need to stop being a bunch of modern day Jonas running from God. Amen. All of us, not just 5% of us, need to get busy being faithful firefighters. If we're going to turn this town around for Jesus Christ. Vegas is our Nineveh. And hopefully we haven't got into that self-righteous attitude where we have forgotten where we came from and what we've been forgiven of to where we would look at the people around us and say, oh. Those people were called the Pharisees. And if there were ever a group of people you don't want to emulate, it's the Pharisees. Jesus had very choice words for those people. And so that's why, whether we like it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, sometimes our difficult circumstances are serving as an opportunity to get us motivated to do and to be what we're supposed to be, a faithful witness for Jesus so the Ninevites around us might be saved. And isn't that what we're saying we're praying for? Sometimes I think it's easier to cut a check and pay somebody else to do the evangelism for you 
as Christians, I'm talking church-wide across America, than it is for us to do it to the people God put around us. But that's how it's won. Folks, our country's going down the tubes. Here's the good news. Jesus is the answer. He's always been the answer. And if you want to make a difference, then start sharing Jesus. But if it's going to happen, we've got to stop being a bunch of Jonas. Amen? The 17th thing, and the one we're going to finish up with today anyway, what is God doing? Why is he doing? Well, he might be teaching you the power of praise. Okay, teaching you the power of praise. Okay, real quick, this is what we see in the book of Hebrews. Okay, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 through 16 says this through Jesus, therefore, let us once in a while, now what's it say? Continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and also do not forget to do good and to share with others. Why? Well, here it is for with such sacrifices, God is what? Please, how many guys would like to please God? Praise God. The rest of you didn't raise your hands. I'm glad you're here. We can help you out. But uh, <laughs> okay, we, hopefully we should all want to please God. But the writer of Hebrews instructs us on some practical ways. To, oh, if only I knew how to please God. I, it's just I'm so mysterious. No, it's not. Just here's one passage. Well, how do you please God? Well, here's three things. Here's what Hebrews says. Uh, number one, you could do good things in the name of Christ, right? Number two, you could share things in the name of Christ. Or three, the first one he mentioned there was to continually, not once in a while, not just when you feel like it, to continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. Now, notice two things about this kind of praise that totally jazzes God, totally pleases him. Whoa, yeah, look at my kid. What's going on there? He's always pleased, yeah. Listen to what this kind of praise is, okay? One is continual. Did you catch that word there? That means it doesn't stop. That means even in the hard times, you still praise him. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I had a very uh, a profound instructor, and he sh shared this very profound truth. And he says, if you're ever wondering as a Christian, when should you praise God? Here it is. When you're alone and when you're with somebody. That's the profound truth. Yeah, it's all time, so it's continual. You guys, you weren't sure to laugh or not. This is funny. <laughs> okay, but it's continual, nonstop, right? Okay, number two, what was the word there? It's a sacrifice. Continual and it's a sacrifice. Now, here's the problem. Oh, we say we love to praise God. And we love to praise God when things are looking up. Woo I can't wait to get to praise God. Things are working out. Now I get the answer, and it's awesome. And we love to praise We can't wait. But we don't want to praise when things are going down. When we don't have the answer yet, or we don't see the solution, we don't see the why, the blank isn't filled in, but I mean, I mean, if I were to do that when I didn't have the answers and I didn't know why, why I mean, that would be a sacrifice, wouldn't it? And that's what he says. I'm pleased with that. Because that shows me you're trusting me always. You're trusting in my character always. Okay. It's continual, it's a sacrifice all the time, okay? Now, once we refuse, though, to offer up to God a sacrifice of praise in the midst of our pain, we miss out on what I call the power of praise, okay? 
when you are praising God, there is something, I'm telling you, supernatural that happens. Because what happens is, as Christians, we create this, I call it a, a spiritual black hole. If you know anything about the properties of a theoretical black hole, okay, for those of you who hooked on science and read the back of that granola bar this morning, okay, uh, but the theories of a black hole is it sucks in everything in its way. Even light is supposed to get sucked into all that thing, okay, right? And that's what happens. We, we, we go through a black hole. We go through a hard time. We go through a dark experience. And, but that's all we can think of. And so it sucks out the light of God and everything's doom and gloom. That's all we can see. But when you praise God, it's a sacrifice because you don't feel like it. I've been there. It pulls you out of that black hole. And your focus is now on the Father. Not your circumstance, not your feelings. And you know what happens? It's back. That joy. It didn't mean your problem went away. But that joy is there. That peace is there. That's the power of praise. It's not just something we need to do. It sets us free from the black hole. Okay, so out of mercy, out of love, out of goodness, that's what God does. He'll allow, orchestrate some circumstances to come our way, and we can learn real fast. We can either pout because of our pain or offer up a sacrifice of praise to God in spite of our pain because that's what returns our focus to the Lord. And once we become focused on the Father, not our feelings, we're able to transcend the situation, any situation, I kid you not, with joy. Shared it before, but this is probably one of the most profound, actual occurrences of the power of praise. See if you can guess who this guy is again. He and his family were members of the Fullerton Avenue Presbyterian Church, and he and his wife had learned what it meant as Christians to completely trust in God in every situation. Their only son, though, was killed by scarlet fever at the age of four. A year later, he invested heavily in real estate on the shores of Lake Michigan, but every single one of those holdings was wiped out by the great Chicago fire. So aware of the tolls that these disasters had taken on his family, this man decided to take his wife and four daughters on a holiday to England and then travel throughout Europe. Yet just before they set sail, a last minute business issue forced him to delay. But not wanting to ruin the family holiday, he told his family to go ahead as he uh, planned and he'd catch up with them on the other side of the Atlantic. But their ship never made it. It collided with an English sailing ship and sank within 20 minutes. And even though this man's wife was able to cling to a piece of floating wreckage, all four, all four of their daughters were killed. And the next thing you know, he received a horrible telegram from his wife, only two words long, and it just simply said, saved alone. So he immediately boards the next available ship to be near his grieving wife. And during the voyage, the captain of the ship called him over and said, I believe we are now, listen, we are now passing the place where the ship was wrecked and his daughters died. And so he goes back to his cabin and he pins the lyrics of this great sacrificial hymn of praise to God in the midst of his pain. Maybe you recognize it. The words go like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Over the grave, the watery grave of his daughters. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. You know what? It is well. It is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford. 
So is God being a meanie when he's allowing Horatio and his family tonight today by going through hard times like that? No. He's trying to teach us a powerful lesson, like he did with Horatio. Listen, true praise to God does not depend upon our feelings. It's in spite of our feelings. True praise is not centered on ourselves. It's centered on Jesus Christ, our Savior, no matter your circumstances. And Horatio's hymn brings you and I back to the bottom of the line. At the end of the day, listen, it is our relationship with God and that alone that holds us fast in all of our trials. That's what keeps us from submerging into the black hole and being drowned by our circumstances. Nothing else. And so sometimes God will allow those hard times to come to teach us how to be set free from that through the uplifting power of praise. You praise him continually. Yes, it hurts sometimes. It's a sacrifice. But once you keep doing that continually, you're free. And you can make it through anything with Jesus Christ. In fact, sometimes it's God's way when we go through a loss. Sometimes it's God's way of giving us something better like this shepherd shows us. Watch this. This is cool. Hey, gang, this is Ray Carmen coming to you from over here at Namrack Farms. And this morning we had a beautiful new set of twins, as you see right here behind me. This is their mama. And they're both together, a little boy and a little girl. But I want you to notice something. Uh, see what mama's doing right there? Somehow this morning, before I got here, mama got separated from this little girl. And now mama has decided to reject that little girl. So that means, guess what? The shepherd gets to take his little lamb home and raise it, which is going to make my little son Truett really happy because he wanted to bottle raise a lamb. But I saw a lesson in this, and I want to share it with you. Sometimes in our life, someone who's really important to us, who means a lot to us, who we think our survival depends upon that person, they reject us. They, re they turn their back on us, and they leave us alone. They won't let us have the milk that we think we need. They won't feed us. They won't groom us. They won't even clean us off. This little lamb is nasty. She's been born for half a day, and her mama hasn't cleaned her off. And as you see, she's butting her, and now she's afraid of her. And oftentimes we wonder, why did that person who was so important to me, did they leave me? Why did they abandon me? Why are they hurting me? Why are they rejecting me? Maybe, maybe just maybe, it's because the shepherd wants to pick you up and take you home, clean you up and feed you himself. And in that way, you will form an intimate, close relationship with the shepherd. I've got a lamb right now that we started bottle feeding last year. He's now a year old, a big ram. He's like a big puppy dog. I come in the field, he runs to me. He loves me. He wants to be with me. My daughter who did most of the feeding, man, he is excited when she shows up. So I'm looking forward to raising this little girl right here. Because I know when I get done, she'll run to me. She'll love me. She'll stick with me no matter what. So maybe it's just that when someone's left you or abandoned you that you think life is terrible. Maybe it's just because the shepherd wants to pick you up and spend some intimate time with you. Love that analogy when I first came across that. It tells me what the scripture has been telling us all along. God's not being a big meanie when he allows us to go through a hard time, even losing a relationship, losing a loved one, going through a loss of any kind. Just like that loving 
shepherd. God, he won't just take care of us, but he'll take care of us personally. And sometimes that's his way. We get wrong attachments. I'm not saying relationships are bad. But sometimes he wants to give us something better, and that something better is an intimate relationship with him. And that we learn to get our milk from him. And we seek him. He's our knee-jerk reaction. He's the one that we turn to first. He's the one that we develop that relationship with. So when, not if hard times come, just like a little puppy dog, we've been trained to go to the Father. It's an intimate relationship with Jesus is what we need more than anything. And so if he has to do what he's got to do, even allow a loss to get us to learn that, isn't it worth it? He's a good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. I guarantee you there's something fantastic, a great reason why, because he is sovereign and he is good and we're his lambs as well. Amen? Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven, and that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness, or the wrong things that we have done, have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin, or unholiness, uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy, we're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you have ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay? How many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay? Well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief. Okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. Okay, and folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. 
One more out of the Ten Commandments says you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God. And you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, if he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell, and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. 
And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask Him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in His work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.